0: Our first uh, scripture reading this morning is from the New Testament, a very short passage, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, over the uh, past uh, several weeks, uh, we've looked at just about all the kinds of things that can go wrong in a church. There is the danger of losing the love that you had at first which was the case in the church in Ephesus. And then there were two churches, uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia, where the people needed to exercise patient endurance as they were undergoing intense persecution as Christians. In Pergamum, it was a theological compromise. In Thyatira, there was moral compromise. And then if you remember, there was that flat-line spiritual deadness in the church in Sardis. Well today we conclude my sermon series as we're looking at the seventh and last of the churches in Revelation with the church of Laodicea. Now during this sermon series I talked about that there's sort of this formulaic outline that you can find in the letters. It's the same all the way through. There's praise, there's problems, and then there's promises. But today we come to an exception because Jesus can't think of one thing worth praising this church over. There's only problems, but then there's promises. Laodicea has big, big problems, but... Jesus also makes to them the most wonderful promise of all of the seven churches. So I'd like for us to look together now at the last of these seven churches in the church of Revelation. And I'm going to be reading from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. You can follow along on the screen. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice, And open the door. I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne. Just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we begin, you need to know that Laodicea was one of the wealthiest cities in all of Asia Minor. It was strategically placed at the intersection of three major trade routes. Laodicea had its own stadium, amphitheater, town square with a bank, YMCA, and medical school. It was the Beverly Hills of today. It was the home of millionaires. How wealthy was Laodicea? Well, after they had this devastating earthquake in AD 60, they turned down Katrina type financial aid. Rome wanted to give them disaster relief assistance, but they said, We don't need it. We can rebuild the city by ourselves. And so this was a church with deep pockets. There was just one problem in this otherwise ideal city. They did not have. A water supply. Now, of course, if you're rich enough and smart enough, you'll figure out a way to pipe in water to your city. And so, what the Romans did was they built aqueducts and they brought in the water through these aqueducts from the city of Heropolis, which was about six miles away. Now, the waters in Heropolis were actually hot springs, but by the time it arrived in Laodicea, it had the reputation of being the worst tasting water in all of the Mediterranean. Imagine for just a moment drinking three-day-old mineral water that had traveled six miles, smelled like sulfur, and had been swam in. All of you can say yuck now at the same time. Laodicea was known as the great city with the really bad water. And Jesus says to that church, I know your works you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, but you're lukewarm. In other words, what I think Jesus is saying is, lay to see a your Presbyterian, you're, you're just like your lousy water. And then Jesus says, I am going to spit you out of my mouth. That is actually the origin for my sermon title this morning, which if you look at your bulletin, is not a typo in your bulletin. It is not Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. But it says great expectorations. You know, I worked on that a, hard, a long time this week. I just want you to know that. Because Jesus says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Literally speaking, Jesus just can't stomach what is going on there in Laodicea. Now, did you know that in the dictionary, the word Laodicean actually appears? It means Indifferent lukewarm especially in the area of religion and the problem at laodicea was their lukewarmness in the area of faith it's not that laodicea was was hostile to the gospel it's not that they were anti-christianity it's just that they weren't really into it very much and you know what that's usually the way it works Lukewarmness has a way of kind of just sneaking up on us, even in the midst of our prosperity. It can happen so subtly, it can happen so innocently that we hardly notice this. Our, our passion for God just kind of gradually cools until we wake up one morning and our faith is all but gone. So at Laodicea, instead of Jesus Christ being the hub, the center of their lives, he, he, he was just a spoke on the wheel. He he was one more thing to check off on a to-do list along with children's soccer games and paying the bills and staying in shape and keeping the lawn and oh yeah, uh, there's Jesus too that I sort of somehow have to manage to squeeze into my life. When you walked into first Laodicea, you felt like the people there were just mindlessly going through the motions. Someone has written, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul and disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a person of another race or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want about a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. Yes, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. When you walked into the Laodicea church, you felt like you were coming in to just get your spiritual gas tank refilled for another week. I saw a cartoon that sort of captures the flavor of the Laodicea church, it, uh, it's a picture of a church that has a sign out in front of it, just like we have a sign out in front of our church, and it said on the, on the board, Welcome to the Light, L-I-T-E, Church. We have 24% fewer commitments. We're home of the 7.5% tithe. We have 10-minute sermons and 45-minute worship services. We only have eight commandments, your choice. Everything you've always wanted in a church and less. Laodicea was a light church. They were lukewarm. Today, we might call them nominal Christians. It's not that they were unchurched, it's just that they were underchurched. And what's really sad, if you look at the story of Laodicea, is that there once was a time in their life of faith when they were red hot with passion. You know, a person did not become a Christian in the first century by being lukewarm in your faith. But in simply one generation, these people had kind of gotten trapped in the wrappings and wrapped in the trappings of their own successes and had cooled them off in their passion for God. You say, well, John, how exactly does a person become lukewarm? If you think about it, it's really not that hard. You simply accommodate to your surroundings, and then you begin to take on the temperature and the climate around you. That water that I mentioned that was being piped in from Heropolis is simply accommodated to the temperature of the air that was around it. And I think in the same way, we become lukewarm when we accommodate ourselves to the culture that is around us. Do you ever go into Starbucks and order a mocha latte or a caramel macchiato? You know that they provide you with a lid, right? They put it on top to keep it hot. They, you can put a sleeve over the cup to, because it is so hot and then you can proceed over to the table to, to read stuff on your phone or to talk with a friend if you're meeting them there. In fact, they even have these little plastic green thingies that you stick in the top of the hole of your cup. Why? So you can keep your coffee hot. Now, what would happen if you spend too much time looking on your phone or talking to the person that you're with? I'm willing to bet that coffee will get lukewarm and nasty. But if you take it home, throw it in the microwave, and zap it, you have hot coffee. And you know Maybe that should be our prayer. Oh, God, put me in your microwave. Zap me. Heat me up. Because you see, our coolness toward God can occur when we're not paying attention and our passion just of slips and melts away into half-heartedness. Apostle Paul was sort of getting at this a little bit as you heard me read earlier from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul warned us to be not conformed but be transformed. Conform literally means Don't be pressed into the mold of the world around you. So let me ask you a question. Can you think of anything worse, really now, can you think of anything worse than being treated in a lukewarm way by someone you love? Is there really anything worse than being treated in a lukewarm way by someone you love? In the movie, The Story of Us, uh, Bruce Willis and Michelle Pfeiffer star as a middle-aged couple who have been married for 15 years, Ben and Katie Jordan. And after 15 years of marriage, they are coming to terms with the reality that they no longer love each other. They're emotionally drained from that relationship. They're exhausted from all the bickering and arguing. And so Ben and Katie decide to attempt a trial separation during the summer when their kids are away at summer camp. They believe that their only option is a silent retreat to neutral corners. It's not that they hate each other, but they certainly don't love each other. They are lukewarm to each other, they are indifferent to one another. Well, friends, I'm here to tell you that that is not how Jesus Christ sees you and me. It's not lukewarm, it's not indifferent. It is burning, it is passionate, and it is eternal. I love the words from that great old hymn, The Church's One Foundation. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Jesus Christ loved us all the way to the cross, and we are commanded by him to love him back with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. You know you don't go halfway in the skydiving. Ask any of those mothers who are up here this morning. You, you aren't just a little bit pregnant, <laughs> and you cannot be a lukewarm Christian. It's either all the way, or it's nothing at all. As I said at the outset. Of all the seven letters, Laodicea is the one that receives the most severe condemnation. Because in the other churches, in the other letters, Jesus says, well, I commend you for this, or I condemned you for that. But in Laodicea, Jesus hits them right between the eyes. But then he says something rather unusual. He says, it's because I love you. Verse 19 in Revelation 3 says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. You know, one of the things that athletes learn is that it's not necessarily a bad thing to be yelled at by your coach. In fact, it's probably a good thing to be yelled at by your coach because if you're about to be cut from the team, that coach will pretend that you don't even exist. And so this this sort of a strange paradox of sports, but when the coach is yelling at you, what that coach is saying is, you are an important part of this team, and I'm counting on you to be the best that you can be. And so when Coach Franklin at Penn State is yelling at his players, it just means his heart is full of love. (laughs) My friends, if, if God is in your face this morning and you are feeling his judgment and discipline, you ought to feel good about that because it means that you, all of you, matter to God. And you are an important part of what God wants to do through you in the world. Jesus says, I discipline those whom I love. And then finally, Jesus demonstrates even more love for the Laodicean church with one of the most beloved passages in all the Bible. It's kind of shocking if you think about it because the worst church gets the best promise as Jesus Christ, the seeking Savior, comes knocking on our heart's door. If you don't hear anything else I've said to you this morning, which is, by the way, a tricky preacher device to get you to listen. But if you hear anything else I said this morning, listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in with you and eat with you and you with me. There's an artist, one by the name of Holman Hunt, who has a painting of Jesus Christ knocking on a door which is shaped like a human heart. And what's interesting to me, if you look at the the passage here from Revelation, the emphasis is not on the knocking of the heart's door. It's on the voice of the one who's on the other side of the door. Now, in ancient times, there were two ways that you gained entrance into someone's house. The most formal way would be you come to the door, you knock on it, you wait for the servant to come, open the door, and then they would ask you your name. But if you were family... or or an intimate friend, you would knock on the door and shout, it is I! And that servant would come, hear your voice, open the door, and welcome you in. Jesus Christ says, if we recognize his voice, we will open the door, and he will enter. He says, I will come into you, or as the old King James Version of the Bible says, which you may have grown up with, I will sup with you. In his best southern accent, Jesus says, I want supper with y'all. Jesus says, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will sit down with you and have a meal with you. Not some kind of quick fast food thing at Chick-fil-A. Not some kind of grab and go through the drive-through line. I want to sit down and have an elegant dinner with you with long, lingering conversation. Now, it's interesting to me that Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 is a scripture that is often used to invite people to come to Jesus Christ for the first time. But you know, as I looked at it this week, I think it's really an invitation for lukewarm Christians to let Jesus back into their lives with a renewed passion. And so, friends, whether it's for the first time, or the second, or the third, or the fifth, or the hundredth, Jesus invites us to open the door this morning. He waits for us to invite him into our hearts. See that doorknob? It actually opens from the inside. And Jesus Christ is the consummate gentleman. He's not going to kick in the door, he's not going to run around the house looking for a window to sneak into. He knocks and he knocks and he knocks and he knocks and he awaits our answer. And so it's up to us. How badly do you want Jesus Christ to reign in your life as Savior and Lord? That's the question. So friends, let's open the door. Let's invite him in. Let's give Jesus Christ total access and make him the center of our lives, the center of our hearts once again. Would you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would look upon us as your people today. Help us not to be a light, L-I-T-E, church, but here at Chestnut Level Presbyterian, that we would be a church whose hearts are on fire for you, where in all that we do and in all that we say, we are more than just going through the motions. God, we don't want to be lukewarm, but we want you more than anything else in our life. And so now, Come and have your Holy Spirit breathe on us and on the embers that are smoldering with renewed passion. Ignite the flames of passion in our families, in our jobs, in our friendships. Inflame the passion of our service to you, whether it be our, our compassion for the poor, our love for prayer, our studying of your Holy Word. Shine, Jesus, shine and set our hearts on fire. All this we pray in Christ's name, amen.